Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the fifth Sunday after Epiphany is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments about today's sermon, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website, faithlutheran-aflc.org. Now let's join in and hear what God has to say to us today. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the sermon text appointed for this Sunday. The sermon is taken from Psalm 112, which can be found on page 952 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning's psalm is one of those quirks of, of the, the church liturgy that exists. The, the actual appointed psalm reading for this morning is the first nine verses of Psalm 112. The, 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 the assigned reading leaves off the last verse. And, and I thought to myself as I looked at this and prepared for the week, well, that just doesn't seem fair. Verse 10 is Scripture 2. And I realize as you append verse 10 back to the reading, as you look at Psalm 112 as a whole, it gives us a different wrinkle in the way we think about what this psalm is teaching. Psalm 112 is a call to virtuous living. Now as far as psalms are concerned, and even as the whole of Scripture is concerned, that shouldn't surprise us. Virtuous living is a frequent theme in the Psalms. But what's interesting about Psalm 112, when you consider it as a whole, when you read to verse 10, is that it's a call and an invitation to virtuous living because you have enemies. That's an interesting focus. That's an interesting element. This, this psalm twice mentions the idea of having enemies. First, directly in verse 8, the psalmist writes, his heart is steady, he will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his enemies. The second time, in my opinion, though, is more interesting. Verse 10, the wicked are mentioned. They're not directly mentioned as being an enemy, but their response to virtue makes them 
an enemy. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Why, in a call and invitation to be virtuous, does the ultimate focus and emphasis point us to our enemies? What's the purpose here? And so turning our eyes back to Psalm 112, there are two major truths we have to understand about this psalm. And the first truth is, in the case of our virtue and our virtuous living, we have a call and invitation to be aware of the wicked who will use our deeds against us. Now that idea shouldn't really surprise us at all either. Christians have long been called hypocrites, almost as long as they've been called Christians. Most people in the world, and even many people in the church, unfortunately, think Christianity can be distilled down to a system of moral behavior. And so then, every time a Christian publicly falls into sin, it's an excuse for someone in the world to call us hypocrites and then to claim that Christians should not judge them because we can't even manage our own house. That's the way of the world. And so the psalmist here, perhaps even in anticipation of that, lays out all the benefits of a virtuous life. A virtuous life is a life that is focused on God's word and on God's commandment, that reveres and honors God as the God of the universe. A virtuous life is a life that is spent training your kids in the faith and seeing them succeed because of that. A virtuous life prospers by doing the right thing. A virtuous life embraces and exercises grace, mercy, and righteousness toward others. A virtuous life is a life that is so anchored in the Lord that it will not crumble in the face of bad news or trials or tribulations. And a virtuous life is a life that is expressed in generosity. These principles specifically laid out for us in the verses of Psalm 112, generally describe one who will be respected by others in society. And they describe the individual who has no reason to fear if a jealous, wicked person tries to attack them. It will be the wicked person who suffers because of their virtue. Now, now, we see this happen all the time in society, and again, especially with the rise of social media. If someone stumbles and, foul, and falls, they will be ridiculed and canceled by society. They will be pointed out and mocked and eliminated. But think of the reaction when the frothing masses try to cancel a virtuous person. All it ends up with doing is looking obnoxious. It's, it's really annoying, and, and when a per virtuous person is attacked in society, the accuser almost always ends up being the one being shamed. Uh, uh, for, for lack of better examples, the person that kept popping into my head when, when this idea started rolling through my brain is Tim Tebow. Every time someone tries to cancel Tim Tebow, they end up with egg on their face because Tim Tebow is a legitimately good person. You can't really cancel him. Right? Uh, there was, there was uh, very vaguely, 
a, a, a moment in time like 18 months ago when someone tried to do that to Tom Hanks too. And you can't cancel Tom Hanks. He's a good guy, right? So, so that sort of thing works. And, and so we are taught in Scripture as a principle that if we are actively leading a righteous and virtuous lifestyle before our neighbors, we have nothing to fear. Should people rise to mock and ridicule and attack us, we have nothing to be attacked by. When, when people try to attack Christians simply because they're Christians, we should expect that. And we should stand and be ready. But it's also here that we have an opportunity to make a very good and necessary pivot. Because we have another enemy besides the world around us. We must also recognize that the devil stands as our enemy. And rather than just be satisfied to hurl accusations against us in society, where the devil accuses us is in the courtroom of our own conscience. The devil is always plaguing us by throwing our sins back at us and back at us and back at us again. And the devil will tempt us to sin and then in the realm of our conscience, he will accuse us of sinning to our shame and to our guilt. And so the call by God in his word for our lives to live by his commandment is a call that is designed by God in his word to protect us from the adversary. God cares about our conscience. Which is why the second truth about Psalm 112 is even bigger and more important than the first truth. The second truth is that the call and praise of virtue in Psalm 112 is about Jesus Christ. And here again, as you will be reminded regularly by me all year long, we do well to remember that the Psalms are generally speaking either words about Jesus or the prayers of Jesus. And here is no exception. Psalm 112 works as a perfect description and praise of Jesus' perfectly virtuous and perfectly law-fulfilling life. And in much the same way we are called to live a virtuous life because we have enemies, Jesus came and lived a perfectly virtuous and law-fulfilling life because he too has enemies. But Jesus is virtuous, and Jesus obeys and fulfills God's laws precisely because we are his enemies. Precisely because we don't do what he has done for us. We are God's enemies because we are sinners. We are God's enemies because every time we sin, we rebel against him. We try to overthrow him as the Lord of the universe. And so Jesus comes in the midst of his enemies and he obeys God's law for us and in our place. And he does so perfectly. And so running through the descriptions of Psalm 112, we have a description of Jesus' life. In his earthly life, Jesus demonstrated a proper reverence and respect for his heavenly Father, even to the point 
of separating himself from his parents when he was a child and staying in the temple and telling them, don't you know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus delights in God's commandments and Jesus delights that children would know God's commandments. Jesus' wealth is demonstrated not only by his divinity, that he is the Lord of the universe, but by Jesus' proper and almost flippant attitude towards money. He's not bothered by money. He's not threatened by money. He has a good relationship with finances. Jesus' obedience is shown in that he is perfectly gracious, perfectly merciful, and perfectly righteous. Not just in concept as God, but to individuals in healing them, in caring for them, and in providing for them. Jesus is unshaken. Jesus perfectly stands on both his mission and in his identity. Jesus does not fear bad news. He's not shaken by a bad report. In fact, he stood in the face of false accusations and took it, and then he was executed in our place. Jesus' generosity is eternal. With Jesus for us, even in fulfilling the law, the only ones that can complain about his virtue and his righteousness are those who reject him, those who refer, refuse his grace and his mercy. And they, along with Satan, are defeated foes because Jesus has completed what he set out to do. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Not only does he fulfill the law, Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has satisfied the demands of God's law for you and in your place. Jesus has died in your place. He has received the punishment you deserved for not being virtuous, for not being righteous. And Jesus has risen from the dead. Jesus has defeated your enemies. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil for you. Jesus led a perfectly virtuous, law-fulfilling life because we need it. And in doing so, Jesus turns his enemies into his neighbors. And in doing so, Jesus frees us to turn our enemies into our neighbors. Jesus frees us not to hoard our virtue, not to collect our righteousness, but to give our virtue and righteous living to our neighbors for their benefit. That is the effect of Jesus' redemption and salvation for us. He reorients us not only to God as righteous, but he also reorients us to our neighbors. So that our good works are not for us because we have been saved. And they're not for God because he is God and doesn't need anything. Our good works are used to love and serve our neighbor. 
to pour out on them the mercy and grace and compassion we've received from God, to give to them what God has granted to us in our generosity. Every single thing you give away, whether it's your dollars or your minutes or your emotions, is a thing that God has given to you. You don't own it. It's for your neighbor. These are all ways in which God provides for all of creation as he sustains and holds everything together. And that includes your virtuous and righteous life. But in addition to that, and according to what we heard in the gospel lesson this morning, our virtue... Our righteousness, our good deeds also serve as an appeal to our neighbors to receive and hear the gospel. The call for Christians to be virtuous is a call for us to be different than the world. It's a call for us to stand out and demonstrate to our neighbors that there is something else, something better than the selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered way of the world. It's an invitation for us to see that we have been forgiven and declared righteous by God, but it's also an invitation for the world to see that we have been forgiven. And that God declares us righteous. In short, our virtue, our mercy, our grace, our compassion, our righteousness, and our generosity, all of this is a plea to see the grace, mercy, righteousness, and generosity of God poured out on the world in Jesus Christ. And in that, it is a reminder for us to stand firm. In that, it is a reminder for us to stand firm in the face of attack and slander and accusation. It's a reminder to stand firm in our conscience and remember that our standing before God is based on Jesus Christ hanging on the cross and not on our performance. It is a reminder to stand firm on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And it is a reminder to stand firm in Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, to pass that grace and mercy to others. And so the righteous, those whom God has called to be righteous and those whom God has declared to be righteous, The righteous stand firm and will never be moved. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is and who his Son is for us. Amen. And now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.